Well, good morning. You know, it is awful easy to um, miss whatever it is that you're waiting for if you allow yourself to get distracted by watching something else. That's my life. My, my life is just one distraction after another. And I don't think it's just me. I think it's something that is common for, uh, for most of us. And you know what? I think our enemy, our spiritual enemy, knows this about us. And he seeks to use that characteristic against us. And so he is constantly offering us a vast array of possible distractions and diversions, good things, bad things. He really doesn't care anything that will cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. You see, the enemy's goal is to see you and me destroyed, to see us separated from God for all of eternity, to keep us from embracing that grace and forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And the enemy knows he knows that he doesn't have to get us to embrace some extravagant evil. He knows that, well, he knows what you and I like to deny. The fact that we've already got enough evil of our own to guarantee our condemnation. You see, the enemy knows that, that he merely needs to keep us away from Jesus. He merely needs to keep us absorbed enough in other things that we won't look to the Savior. And so he seeks to distract us with doing good things or with trying to be good. He attempts to divert our energy and attention to, to thriving or, or, from his perspective, even better, to merely surviving here in this world. And he, he tries to deflect any Godward thoughts away from anything that would actually cause us to come to know the Lord more and to instead direct them towards theological perspectives or speculative interpretations. You see, our enemy doesn't care where we focus our attention as long as we don't turn our eyes to Jesus as long as we don't put our hope and our trust in him. <laughs> and yet, that's exactly what we want to do this morning, right? As we look at this morning's passage, Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 30, our heart, our desire is that we would see Jesus, that we would see Jesus and we would come away from this time knowing him more and being more connected to him. So let's do this. Grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse 18. You can stand, follow along. I'll read our passage. You follow along in your Bible. Beginning in verse 18, chapter 13. It says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? 
It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping, gnashing of teeth in that place. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves are thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd meet us here in this time. Lord, we thank you that your word promises us that, that you will be our teacher if we ask, you will give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that you can open our minds and our hearts so we can not only understand, but we can receive and respond to the things that you say to us. So, Lord, as we open up your word, help us to, to hear, to understand, to receive all that you would have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As always, we've got to remember our context, where we pick up this morning. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and he's been teaching the crowds that have gathered, and he has been boldly calling them to do what? To put their faith in him. He's warned them that, that a day of judgment is imminent, and that God's long-promised kingdom has come, and that they needed desperately to receive his gracious forgiveness lest they find themselves standing before God without excuse for how they've lived, fully accountable and utterly guilty. Now, that wasn't at all what the Jews of Jesus's day expected the message of God's Messiah to be. And it's not what they expected the coming of the kingdom of God to be like. You see, for hundreds of years, the Jews had looked forward to the day when, when God's Messiah would come and he would set them free from captivity. Think about this. For 700 years, excepting just a few brief 
seasons of independence, the Jewish nation had lived as a conquered and a subjected people. Think about that. 700 years, it's a long time. That's the collective memory of a culture. It started with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Next came the Persians. After them, it was the Greeks. All of them ruled over Israel. And for most of the last hundred years, it had been the Romans. Because of that, the Jews had become passionately fixated on the Old Testament prophecies that described the Messiah as a military liberator. Passages like Ezekiel 37 that talk about the, the return of King David and, and Jeremiah 23. Listen, listen to what Jeremiah says, uh, beginning in verses five and six. He says, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, that's the Messiah. What will that Messiah be and do? Well, he will reign wisely as a king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Oh, everything they were missing. It was everything that they desired. They longed for freedom, for sovereignty, for justice. And they just knew, they just knew that when Messiah came and when God's kingdom finally arrived, he would set them free. He'd set them free from the harsh injustice of Rome's rule over them. Now, God would, he will eventually fulfill all of those promises there in Ezekiel and in the other passages. And not one of them will fail. But you see, the time for that had not yet come. God's plan wasn't going to look like they expected it to look. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? You see, it wasn't going to be what they expected. They expected something grand. But Jesus says, verse 19, it's like a mustard seed. This grand thing, this wonderful day that they had been waiting for. Jesus says it's going to be like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed into his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Jesus says that God's kingdom would start very tiny, like a mustard seed. A mustard seed that gets, it gets buried in the vast expanse of a garden. He continues in verse 20, he says, it's like leaven that a woman took and mixed, and don't miss this deal, detail, mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it was all leavened. So Jesus says that God's kingdom is like a tiny bit of leaven that gets mixed into a preposterously large amount of flour. 50 pounds of flour, my goodness, what is, this, what is this for? How much bread is going to be made here? And now the shocking thing about this revelation for Jesus's followers would not have been the eventual growth or expanse of God's kingdom. You see, 
they never imagined that it would be small. The fact that it would be big is what they expected. They expected Messiah to rule the whole world from there in Jerusalem, which, by the way, he will one day do. You and I, you and I, we're surprised maybe that God's kingdom would grow to be vast. But for Jesus' listeners, to those to whom he is speaking these parables, the shocking truth isn't that the kingdom would grow. The shocking truth is that the kingdom would begin very minuscule. Look at the very next thing that Luke points us to, because I think it's important. It's almost like there's an interruption in what is being said here. In the midst of Jesus telling the parables and then some people asking some questions, there is inserted by Luke into it a comment. He says, Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way where? To Jerusalem. This, this is the small spark the small start that they did not expect. It's the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross that they weren't expecting. You see, they were looking for Jesus to come and to take over, not to come and be crucified. They were expecting him to come and to rule and to reign and for them to be able to rule and reign with him. They were not expecting to watch him suffer and die and then to follow in his footsteps. They wanted a conquering king, not a suffering servant. Can you blame them? Who wouldn't? You see, the Jews had ignored many of the Old Testament passages that spoke of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant. Passages like Isaiah 53. Listen to what Isaiah says of the Messiah there. Partway through verse two, he says, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Partway through verse 11. My righteous servant will justify many. 
and he will carry their iniquities. He willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. You see, when Messiah came, it wouldn't begin with glorious victory. It would begin with his execution in our place. The kingdom of God would be like a mustard seed that is swallowed up in a garden. And maybe we might even think was lost. But it would grow. It was like a little bit of leaven. It would spread no matter how much flour there was. You and I, we tend to focus on the glorious destiny of the kingdom of God. But you see, Jesus' followers, those men and women who were closest to him, walking with him, they would have been shocked when he told them that it was going to start small. So much so that in verse 23, one of them asked, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Lord, is it just going to be us? Is this all that it's going to be? The reality that we read about in the Gospels is that while there were huge crowds that would follow Jesus from time to time, who would gather to hear him teach and, and to see him heal, yet he had very few true followers. At times, many of those left him. Remember John chapter 6? And how John describes not the crowd's reaction, but his followers, his disciples' response. After Jesus had spent a day teaching them, John writes this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. You see, it wasn't going how they thought that it would go for God's glorious Messiah. And so when Jesus brings up the small start, they begin to ask if it's going to stay small. Is this it? And they want to know, is this small group all that is going to be saved? Now, as it's often the case, Jesus doesn't really answer their question. You know, he has already told them what the answer is. He, he already told them that it would grow big, that, that the leaven would spread, that the mustard plant would grow enormous. And yet, instead of answering, he instead urges them to make sure that they are saved. Instead of asking the theoretical question, he asks them to ask the practical and the real question. Verse 24, Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, Many will try to enter and won't be able. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, and then you will stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He'll answer, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Get away from me, you evildoers. 
Jesus doesn't comment any further on the kingdom's growth. He simply points these folks to the issue of their own salvation. Telling them to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples here. He wants them to understand that their salvation is not automatic. Even though they were God's people, even though they were his followers, they were hanging out in the right places, yet what Jesus wanted them to understand is that salvation is something that they must choose for themselves. And quite clearly, there's only one path. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Understand this. Jesus did not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, and I am one of many ways to the Father. That isn't what he said. It, it just isn't. The only way to find salvation is to know Jesus. And I don't mean, when I say that, to know about him. It's not about knowing about Jesus. It's actually coming to know him. It's actually putting your hope in him, entrusting your life to him, putting your faith in his death in your place as a payment for your sin, and not as a theological concept, but as a faith-enabled relational reality. Jesus here is very, very clear. Just being around him, just being around his people, that won't save anyone. Knowing religious things won't save anyone. Being a spiritual person won't save anyone. It is only when we choose, individually, personally, really, to come into a relationship with him that we can know salvation. Jesus wants that to be absolutely crystal clear. Because in the here and now, it's really easy to hang around the door to be near those who are going in without actually going in yourself. What we've got to understand is a day is coming when that door will close. And then only those who have gone in will be saved. Then those who are not in Christ, they will stand in the, in the bright light of his perfect and absolutely piercing judgment. Then, despite our best arguments, our most novel excuses, our best facades, we will be exposed and we will be condemned for what we are, evildoers. And that sentence, that will be crushing 
because it will be final. Look at verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. Distress, pain beyond anything that that we have experienced or imagined in this life. He says, when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. You know, it is, it is just unpleasant to speak of hell. Should be. Because it's real. It's horrific. It's eternally horrific. It should be disturbing to us. How awful it will be. to see that which is truly right and good and to forever be cut off from it. To see that for which we were designed, what we were made for, and yet to never be able to taste of it. It's so bad that in Mark 9, Jesus warns us, If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. Now that's extreme. And yet he says it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus often warned his listeners of the eternal tortures of hell. Not because he liked to talk about it. I mean, who would? But because it's real. And because he doesn't want anyone to end up there. That's why. That's why he addresses this. He doesn't want anyone to end up there. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he was willing to take my sin in my place. And that's why he welcomes all, all, absolutely all to come to him to receive forgiveness. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, they will come from the east and the west and north and the south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who were last will be first. Some who are first will be last. I think what Jesus says here had to be almost more shocking to his followers than what he said earlier. The way they would have heard it is this. Jesus was telling them that there were going to be Gentiles in heaven. And they're thinking, what? No. How could that be? How could that be possible? Who would have imagined this? You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews being the first to be brought into salvation, yet now here God in his gracious mercy, he's offering to bring the rest of us in. Those who were last, and that certainly is how the Jews saw the Gentiles, were now welcome to come into God's family. Yet God is not going to abandon his people Israel, understand that. The first, that is the Jews, will also be the last. Paul 
asks and answers in Romans 11.1. 1. He says, has God rejected his people? And he says, absolutely not. You see in the end times. The time of Jacob's trouble, what the Old Testament calls the time of the tribulation. Um, when the church is with Jesus in heaven at that time, those who were first, the Jews, will also be last. And God will return to focusing on his people, Israel. So what can we, what should we take away from this passage this morning? Well, I think just like the, the Jews of Jesus' day, just like his, his followers, his disciples, we've got to make sure that the Jesus we're following is the actual Jesus, not just some figment that we've made up in our minds. But we like to follow the victorious Jesus. But Jesus came as a suffering servant. And as a suffering servant, he called us to come and to follow him. And like him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. He called us to walk in his footsteps. And so you and I, instead of always clinging to strength, instead of always protecting ourselves from suffering, we need to embrace the path of the suffering servant. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. There in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. When's the last time you boasted about a weakness? I don't tend to boast about my weaknesses. I tend to cover them, hide them, disguise them, camouflage them in every way that I can. Yet Paul says, I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. As our world changes, is the circumstances in which we live out our lives and live out our faiths changes so rapidly in our day. I think this is something we are going to have to come to terms with because if we are going to live out our faith, we are going to experience suffering. You know what, friends? We got to be okay with that. We got to be okay with that. We gotta embrace it because in our weakness, he is strong. And I think as well, we've got to walk away from this morning refocused, free from distractions, our attention turned to that thing which God has made the highest priority for our lives. And that is representing him here. Seeking to bring salvation to a world that lingers outside the door. Never forgetting that there is in this life opportunity 
for anyone, for anyone to come to the Savior. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what their experience has been, they can come to Christ. And we've got to remember that one day the door will close. And that the consequence of of not having put your faith in Christ before that door closes, it is very real and it is very horrific. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Paul is saying this, don't linger about the door any longer. Come in. Come to the Savior. If you have never surrendered yourself to Christ, if you have never received his forgiveness, Paul would say, and I would agree, now is the time. Today is the day. Don't linger about the door any longer. And for all of us, we should keep this in mind. In regards to those around us, there are people we need to share with. There are people we need to quit toying with with the gospel, and we just need to make it plain. We need to represent him. We need to invite others to come to him. Because one day, the door will close. And then it'll be too late. May that truth rock us. May it change us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Savior who chose the path of suffering who chose the cross to pay for me God I pray that I would choose to follow his footsteps to embrace suffering as it comes in order that I might represent him well in this world. My focus wouldn't be on protection and insulation, but on serving and representing. And may I represent him well, Lord. May I represent Jesus and offer his grace and love and forgiveness to all that I come in contact with. Imprint on my eyes, Lord, the reality that time is short, that the door will one day close for them. All will be lost. Draw them, Lord. Any who are here this morning, Lord, draw them to yourself. Surrender, Lord, that they would give themselves unreservedly to you. Receive your cleansing. 
your forgiveness, new life, that they might come to know you. We pray it in Jesus' name.